We are going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2 today. We're concluding our series on identity, and we're talking about making disciples today, which really is what it's all about. The goal of the Christian life, uh, our, our purpose in Christ is to reproduce the life of Christ in others, and we're going to be talking about that today and the importance of that. So we'll look at 2 Timothy 2, 1 to 7. I was reading this week that in 2008 at the Beijing Olympics, both the U.S. men's and women's 4 by 100 meter teams, relay teams, comprised of some of the fastest sprinters in the world, ended up dropping the baton, resulting in disastrous performances. The same happened back in 2004 in Athens. Uh, shoddy baton passing ended up costing the men uh, the gold to Britain as they were upset by them, and the women team was disqualified altogether because they couldn't do the baton handoff in the allotted space, and so they were disqualified. An article, which was written back in 2008, said, Now, as American track teams again, loaded with blazing feet, prepare for the 2012 London Games, the biggest concern has more to do with their hands than with their feet As I I read that, I thought, you know, you can have the fastest people in the world, but if you're in a relay race, if you're in a team competition, and you can't hand off the baton, all of that work, all of that training is for nothing. In contrast to that, I read an article uh, written last year about the uh, Japanese team. The article said, there's a Japanese proverb that says, the reputation of a thousand years may be determined by the conduct of one hour. That's a whole sermon right there. The article went on to say, or in the case of Japan's 4 by 100 meter relay team in the 2016 Rio Olympics, by the conduct of just 37.60 seconds. The article says, Japan shocked the world as four of its athletes, none with personal bests quicker than 10 seconds, defeated a host of the world's fastest sprinters. Ryota Yagamata, age 24, Shoto Luzuko, age 25, Yoshide Kiryu, age 21, and Asuka Cambridge, age 23, arrived at Rio in 2016. Not many of their competitors knew who they even were. But they left the Olympics with a silver medal around their necks, an unprecedented Asian record of 37.6 in their pockets, and a slew of new fans. The article went on to ask why, how is that possible? And the answer was Japan's Olympic relay success wasn't luck, but it resulted from years of biomechanical data analysis with meticulous attention paid to baton exchanges. It says, since 2001, the World Championships in Edmonton, the Japanese team started employing the underhand or upsweep baton exchange. The front runner receives the baton at waist level with his palm facing down. Unlike the traditional down sweep exchange, the up sweep fits with the natural movement of top speed runners and allows the giver to be closer to the receiver at the moment of exchange, ensuring minimal loss of speed. So Japan spent years trying to perfect the exchange, realizing that we don't have the fastest runners. And the only way we're going to be competitive is to eliminate that loss of time in that exchange. And they got so good at it, they ended up winning the silver and and 
having unprecedented records that they had never set before, all from studying that exchange. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, is that exchange happening in the church? Are we exchanging our faith? Are we passing on our faith? Are we passing on that baton to others? And and basically, that's called discipleship. Are we reproducing the life of Christ in others, which is our call? Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. It's about A.D. 66. He's in a Roman prison for the last time. He knows that it's probably all going to end here. And he's thinking for the ministry to go on, for the churches that we've started, and for the vision to be accomplished, it's going to happen through his spiritual son Timothy and others that he had passed on the faith to. And so he's writing to Timothy and encouraging him and charging him. And we read about that, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things which you have heard and received from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful people who will in turn be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles themselves in the affairs of everyday life so that they may please the one who enlisted them as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, they do not win the prize unless they compete according to the rules. Finally, the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive their share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. There's an outline for you in the bulletin, and I want to suggest that from our passage today, I see at least five characteristics or distinguishing marks of a discipleship or a disciple maker. The first is that disciple makers know the source of their strength. They know the source of their strength. Look at verse 1. Paul says to Timothy, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We need to understand where our strength comes from. That it's not about us. It's not about our gifts and our talents or our charisma. But it's about the empowering of God through the Holy Spirit. Our strength comes from from the Lord, from God. And it's about His grace rather than our competence, which is very reassuring, which also relieves all excuses because if God calls us to do something, He will supply the strength and all the resources needed. The truth is you and I can't save people on our own. We can't, in ourselves, apart from the Holy Spirit, have the power to transform lives. We can inspire or motivate people to change or make wise choices. All of these things require God's indwelling, His power. That's why Paul said in Philippians 2.13 that God is the one who is at work within us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. In Philippians 1, he exclaimed, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When Paul prayed for that thorn in the flesh to be taken from him, and God responded, no, uh, my strength is made perfect in your weakness, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul learned that even in his inadequacy and his inability, God's strength was made perfect and complete. Disciple makers understand that at the end of the day, it's not about us, 
It's about the Lord and it's His strength. And we need to operate in that strength and in that grace. Secondly, I believe Paul is teaching us that disciple makers pass on trusted material to trusted servants. Pass on trusted material to trusted servants. Verse 2. He says, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful ones who will in turn be able to teach others also. You don't hand off the baton to someone who's going to sit on it or drop it or not do anything with it. It's kind of a waste of an investment if you invest in someone who thinks that the process ends with them. That they're the culmination of that it's all about them rather than them paying it forward to others. We want to invest in men and women that have a burden and a vision to pass that on, to pass the faith on, to continue the process. And Paul says, in the presence of many witnesses, implying that others will hold Timothy accountable. There were other people, when I entrusted the message to you, Timothy, there were others who heard that and witnessed that. And they will hold you accountable to be true to that message so that you don't go rogue. And you don't start subverting the gospel and preaching your own gospel. They're going to know. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, Paul said, Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, and guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in you the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Paul equated the gospel with a treasure that's been given to us. He says, retain the standard of sound words. Don't start adding or subtracting from the gospel, but keep its purity, keep its content, its substance, and guard it carefully so that it can be passed on from generation to generation. And Paul says, those who you pass that baton to need to be faithful, trustworthy people so that the gospel can be guarded, protected from any misrepresentation from false teaching or from bad behavior. The gospel message can be discredited if it's not the true gospel message and it's false teaching or if someone isn't living consistent with the message they're proclaiming. Oftentimes that can derail it as well. And so he calls us to pass it on to people who will be faithful. And as I was thinking about this week, I thought, you know, one of the biggest problems with discipleship is that fear that so many of us have that, well, if I raise up someone else, they might end up replacing me. You know, if I teach someone else, if I entrust certain things to them, what if they're better than me? You know, I don't want to be replaced. And I I read a really good quote this week. The person said, don't be irreplaceable. If you can't be replaced, you'll never be promoted. I thought, what a good point, you know? If God calls you to invest in others, which he does, it means he, maybe he has something bigger and better for us, something even more fulfilling. And God will always use us and always help us to fit into the kingdom plan. And so as we in obedience follow his call, and entrust what's been entrusted to us to others, God will provide the rest. Discipleship also really lives and dies on whether people are willing to follow. Everyone wants to be a leader. But how many of us are willing to, to follow, even if it's for a season? To sit under someone else and to learn and to receive. I read a story this week of a young woman who wanted to go to college, 
But her heart sank when she read this question on the application. It said, are you a leader? And being both honest and conscientious, she wrote, no. And she returned the application expecting the worst. To her surprise, she received this letter from the college. It said, dear applicant, a review of our application forms reveals that this year our college will have 1,452 new leaders. We are accepting you because we feel it is imperative that they have at least one follower. (laughs) I love that. Everyone wants to be a leader. Not too many people want to be followers. But what, what what a wise college that realized that someone's got to follow. All these people that are headstrong thinking they're going to teach others and be leaders, someone has to be a follower. And discipleship requires both those who are burdened to pass on what's been entrusted to them and those that are willing to receive and to um, consider that maybe God has new things for them and maybe that they don't know it all and that whatever they receive, they can in turn pass on to others. Well, disciple makers not only know the source of their strength, not only pass on trusted material to trusted servants, but they also always remember who it is that they serve. Paul says in verse 4, No soldier in active service entangles themselves in the affairs of everyday life so that they might please the one who enlisted them as a soldier. We we need to never lose sight of who it is that we serve and God's purposes and God's objectives. It's so easy for each one of us to slip into an entitlement mentality and we start doing things as to whether it's convenient for us or whether it has a personal benefit for us, rather than if it's God's will, if it's a kingdom objective. And we forget what Scripture says, and we start buying into the values and priorities of our culture. It's easy to just start living the American dream, and and making our goals and priorities those that the world sets for us. You know, where we need to be at this point in our career, and, and what we should have achieved at this stage or that stage. And we forget the words of Jesus. If anyone would follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We forget things like, if anyone loves father and mother more than me, they're not worthy of me. If anyone loves son or daughter more than me, they're not worthy of me. And whoever wishes to lose his life, save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will find it. It's kind of the upside down gospel. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. It's, it, scripture calls us to self-sacrifice, to put God first. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. So it's kind of contrary to how we usually think. And a Roman soldier's single-minded purpose was rigorous discipline and unquestioning obedience to his commanding officer. And all of this combined to make the perfect illustration of what it means to be a servant of the gospel. That we follow our Lord and Savior with unquestioning obedience. And that rigorous discipline. Someone said that the Christian life, the Christian walk, is not for wimps. It's not a sprint, it's a long distance race. And it requires discipline. I think of the twelve disciples... They at many times in the Gospels forgot who it was that they were serving. They at many times thought it was about them. 
We've, we've referenced the feeding of the 5,000 the last few weeks, and as you recall in that, in that story, the disciples were telling Jesus, send the crowds away. We've been out here all weekend. You've been teaching long enough. We're tired. We're hungry. We don't have food for these people. Send them away. They thought it was about them and not the people. Another occasion, the disciples thought it was about them and not the children. Send the children away. Really, seriously. The kids? And Jesus said, don't hinder the children from coming to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. They're actually a really good picture of what the kingdom's all about. You know, the disciples had to continually realign their perspective of what the goal was, what the purpose was. And it's so easy for us to forget as well. We start treating God as our divine wish fulfiller, the one who makes all of our prayers happen and, and, and fulfills them, rather than us praying on behalf of others and, and, and what God wants us to accomplish. Well, fourthly, disciple makers compete to win. They compete to win. Look at verse 5. He says, also, if anyone competes as an athlete, they don't win the prize unless they compete according to the rules. Paul wanted Timothy to run in such a way that he would not be disqualified. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse uh, 26. He said, therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body. And I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. We've, we've read stories of athletes that train for things like the Olympics. And, you know, four years of rigorous 12 to 14 hours a day of training and a disciplined diet and all these things that they deny themselves of only to get to the Olympics and be disqualified by some minor technicality. All of that worked for nothing. And Paul is saying your faith and, and disciple-making is too important to be disqualified. It's imperative that we possess great discipline and self-control and endurance and toughness. Because it's not just about how we start out, but it's about how we finish as well. It's so easy to start things in our culture, but not finish them. You know, it's, it's easy to start a family. It's hard to be there for a family through completion, to raise children to adulthood and to, to train them to be independent and to make decisions on their own. It's easy to start companies or projects or different things and then bail on them halfway through because we're the visionary and somebody else can clean up the mess or, or see it through to completion. But the Bible calls us to follow through and to see things through. And too many... Christians become disqualified late in the race because they lose sight of or they ignore the things, the principles and the convictions that they used to operate with. They just lose sight of that. And the rules of the race are clearly defined for us in Scripture. I was, I was telling the first service that years ago we had some really good friends at Ventura Missionary, Kim and Chris Webb. And they, they left the area years ago and went to Colorado. But I remember many occasions being in a small group together, going out to dinner. And, and Kim Webb, the wife, was adorable. Um, she'd always be like trying to teach us a new game. And 10 or 15 minutes into it, you would find out that she was kind of making up this game as she went along. 
And you'd be at, wait, you'd be trying to clarify it. So the rules are, she's like, oh, that's a good idea. She's <laughs> like, wait a minute. There's no structure to this. There, there, this is crazy. And it's, it's hard to play a game and it's not very enjoyable to, to try and compete in something when things are changing or being made up as you go along. And so many of us do that with life rather than the trusting God's word as a source, the rule book. The guide, the guidebook. We live in a world today where people question whether there's absolute truth. Everything's relative. You do it your way, I'll do it my way, and we'll just call it good. And we either believe that absolute truth comes from God, supreme being, or we just all fend for ourselves. And Paul says, if you want to compete, if you want to win, you got to play by the rules. You can't make it up for yourself. And if we don't play by the rules, life just becomes kind of a chaotic free-for-all in which it's difficult to accomplish anything of lasting value, anything of eternal significance. I preached a sermon at CBC years ago called Running Fast in the Wrong Direction. And in that sermon, I gave the illustration of the Minnesota Viking um, player who in 1964 picked up a fumble and ran 66 yards for a touchdown. His name was Jim Marshall. The problem was Jim ran in the wrong direction, and he scored for the other team. And so you, you see the futility of working hard at something and, and struggling, and but then not enjoying the benefit of it, the prize, because you've been running in the wrong direction. I read about a race this week in India, a bike race, and the object of the race was to go the shortest distance possible within a specified time. At the start of the race, everyone queued up at the line, and when the gun sounded, all the bikes, as best they could, stayed put. Racers were disqualified if they tipped over or one of their feet touched the ground. And so they would inch forward, trying to keep the bike balanced. And when the time was up, another gun sounded, and the person who had gone the farthest was the loser, and the person closest to the starting line was the winner. Well, imagine getting into that race and not understanding how the rules worked. When the race starts, you pedal as hard and fast as you can. You're out of breath, you're sweating, but you're delighted because the other racers are way back at the starting line. And you're, you think, I'm going to break the record. This is fantastic. So you push harder and faster and keep going. And as you hear the gun that ends the race, you're delighted because you are unquestionably the winner. But the truth is you're unquestionably the loser because you misunderstood how the race was run. And I think how true that is of so many of us in life that don't understand God's guidebook and don't understand what God has put in place for our own protection and for our own good. At the end of the Apostle Paul's life, he was able to write these words. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. The fifth and final thing that I see in our passage is that disciple makers understand the reward. They understand the reward. Verse 6, the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. The process really has its own reward. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9.24, 
He says, don't you know that all those who run uh, in the race run, but only one receives the prize? Therefore, run in such a way that you might win. Compete to win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we do it for an imperishable one. But, you know, you think about all the races and competitions that go on in this world, and we're part of an eternal race that God has set before us, and it has eternal significance. And how much more should we be competing to win for something that will never fade away as opposed to something perishable? If the Japanese team spent decades trying to perfect a baton exchange so they could make their mark in history at the Olympics and receive a medal, you know, something that will be forgotten years later, how much more as Christians should we be practicing and working on things of eternal significance and eternal value? I read a book years ago called From Rebellion to Redemption. And it talked about fulfillment. And I love what he said. He said, Fulfillment doesn't come our way by accident. It is a byproduct of our journey with Christ, of an intimate connection with his life. I've never forgot that. Fulfillment doesn't happen by accident. Fulfillment comes from an intimate, connected relationship with Christ. That's where fulfillment comes from. One of my favorite movies of all time years ago, Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire is the kind of the biography of a Scottish runner, Eric Little, and his faith. And he went on from the Olympics to serve as a missionary in China. And in that movie, he's really juxtaposed against another athlete from Britain, Harold Abrams, a Jewish fellow. And Eric Little was continually saying, you know, the Lord may be for a purpose. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. As opposed to Harold Abrams, who at one point in the movie says this, he says, I'm 24 and I've never known contentment. I'm forever in pursuit and I don't even know what it is that I'm chasing. When I run, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. One competed and strived with joy, with pleasure, because he knew he was living out his his life's purpose. He knew he was using the gifts and the abilities that God had given to him. The other, with complete lack of contentment, because he was trying to prove himself. He was trying to validate his own existence. The disciplined, single-minded soldier gains the approval of his commanding officer. The competitive, rule-abiding athlete wins the victory. And the hard-working farmer wins the right to share the first of the crops. Disciple-makers know the source of their strength. They always pass on trusted material to trusted servants. They never forget who it is that they serve. They always compete to win, and they understand the reward. You've probably all heard the old adage that Christianity is only one generation away from extinction. If we fail to pass on our faith to others, Christianity can cease to exist. As a church, CBC is only one generation away from irrelevance, away from not even being remembered if we fail to pass on 
the leadership baton to others. As people come to CBC and leave CBC and we, what are we going to do now? We need to pass on the leadership baton. Other leaders need to rise up to replace former leaders. That's what it's all about. Paul is not only speaking to Timothy, he's saying to all of us, don't become disqualified because you failed to pass on your faith. Know who it is that you're handing that baton to. Choose others to hand that baton to and practice it over and over again because it's not about a temporal perishable prize. It's about an eternal destiny and an eternal prize. Let's pray.